the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the KFAX Ministry of the Week. Each week we highlight a local ministry that is impacting the community in Jesus' name. Our hope is to connect you to a ministry in which you can grow and serve in Christ's kingdom. And now your host for the Ministry of the Week, Craig Roberts. The year was 1971. All in the Family premiered on CBS. In the NFL draft, Jim Plunkett from Stanford University was the first picked by the New England Patriots. Apollo 14, the third U.S. manned moon expedition, landed on the moon, and Alan Shepard hit the first golf ball on the moon. The NASDAQ stock market index debuted. The 26th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution lowered the voting age to 18, and the federal debt was $408 billion. Ah, old times. Oh, and one more thing. Dr. Phil Howard and a brave band of families started Valley Bible Church October 3rd of 1971. And uh, Phil, 45 years ago, that we start to get our age, it's hard to remember back 45 minutes, let alone 45 years. Yesterday I was young. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome to the program, and uh, congratulations first on this uh, this landmark anniversary of Valley Bible Church. I know that you have seen God do some very amazing things over the course of the last 45 years. So take us back for a moment, if you would. I understand that it all began with God essentially calling you back home. Tell us about that. Uh, I was uh, going to a seminary in Fresno, California, uh, at the Biblical Seminary, a Mennonite seminary connected to Pacific uh, University, and uh, I was doing homework on a Thursday night. I was uh, studying with a marvelous Greek uh, pro- professor, uh, D. Edmund Hebert, and that Thursday evening, uh, it's as though God, I just had like an epiphany there, and God burned two verses in my heart, Revelation 3.8, Isaiah 54.17, no weapon would formed against me would prosper, and just uh, said, go back to where you grew up. I was headed for a church in the San Joaquin Valley, and just in that moment, uh, just changed the course of my life and direction, told my wife, she cried, because she didn't really want to come back. She was this other place had a parsonage, and she was expecting our second baby. And so the other offered no security. I, we knew nothing. I didn't know what I could rent, where I would live. I mean, there was it was like Abraham and get out of Ur, but <laughs> I did show him where. But I just knew, come back where I was, uh, had been a sinner, you know, as a kid and didn't know Christ. Go back and try to start a church. You grew up in the Richmond area, and of course, at that time, it's very different from what it is today. The so-called Iron Triangle there was really a focus of so much going on, of course, during World War II. There were the shipyards there, U.S. Steel. That was really a hubbub of activity, really serving as a feeder for the construction of many of the Liberty ships that helped fight the war. My, my folks, I was born 
two blocks away from where they built those Liberty ships. Uh, I was born there in 44. My mother was a Rosie Riveter. My dad was a construction worker. I mean, I grew up in government housing in the Iron Triangle. That's exactly where I grew up. And coming home, when God led you to make that decision, as you point out, uh, you and Caroline were expecting your second baby. There was a tremendous sense of, gee, God, what next here? I mean, you you, you literally began this church ministry in 1971 with just a handful of people. I think 19 or 20 people attended the first service. And here you are 45 years later with a church that has a radio outreach ministry. You have over 2,500 people attending church every week. Could you ever imagine that God would do everything that he's done in the last 45 years? No, no, not not at all. I, uh, You know, if someone were to ask me, what is your primary vision, I would call it survival. Uh, you know, if I could just survive uh, this assignment. I remember I told my dad uh, I was going to start this church, and he asked me, he said, well, you, you've got a two-year-old, you've got a baby on the way, you don't have a congregation, you don't have a job, uh, have you consulted the Ways and Means Committee? <laughs> and uh, I said, well, you you told me you'd never heard of a preacher starving to death that knew how to pray. So I said, it's either going to go or I'm going to learn to sell insurance. I said, there's no need of representing a God that can't take care of a scrawny preacher. And he did the rest. Uh, it's so simple. Nothing really sophisticated about it. I know the big talk today is vision, mission. What's your vision? What's your mission? And I often tell people, you should ask Abraham that. You ought to ask Moses that. What was the game plan? What was the management by objective plan? The big thing was just try to keep up with God. Keep following God. Well, do you think we sometimes overcomplicate things because we're trying to almost treat the church like a business, meaning that uh, businesses, of course, they want to have a two-year, a three-year, a five-year plan. They want to talk about strategic growth and expansion, things of this sort. They come up with programs and operations to help accomplish all of that. And yet I wonder, in the simplicity of the gospel— I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus says, now, once your board has adopted the five-year plan, (laughs) here's what you should do. Instead, it simply says, go and make disciples. Have we lost some of the power of the gospel because we have tended to overcomplicate what is so simple? Well, I I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I remember one time having an interview with Ron Ritchie when he was at PBC, and uh, I was asking him, uh, I was writing a doctor's thesis on church government and planning, and we went out, and I said, uh, Ron, what do you think the key to Peninsula Bible Church's growth? And Give me the uh, formula. I want the formula. And he said, you know what? I've studied the book of Acts for years, and the only thing I can find out is show up in Holy Spirit. And he said, you can't beat those two. If you'll show up, and if the Holy Spirit's in charge, you'll be amazed at how plans will emerge, ministries will grow, and lives will be changed. And sometimes we're really just doing no more than organizing the chairs on the Titanic. 
you know, if you don't have direction, if you don't have God powering and overcoming all the obstacles, uh, we're just going through endless activity. But it, it's an old-fashioned dependence on God, the Spirit, and uh, it's not as much formula. I wish I knew more formula, but the one I have discovered the most is desperately depend on God, and He does the rest. And, you know, that is, I think, uh, not only a good watchword for the birthing and nurturing of a congregation, of a church. But it's also pretty good advice for day-to-day Christian living, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, walk in the Spirit. Uh, Dr. Walford, I, I had a friend that was with him in his last moments when he was dying, that president of Dallas for over 65 years, ready to go see his Savior. My friend leaned over him and Dr. Walbert, his last words was, George, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. His last words. And I'm going to tell you, Craig, uh, I'm more concerned about overcoming the flesh and sin than building a big church, because only Jesus can build the church. Uh, I'm, I'm just wanting him to help me overcome all these seductive voices and temptations of this world. And of course, at the core, as we speak about the application of this from a practical standpoint for our Christian faith, maybe the thing that has tended to to drive more people away from the church than to attract them in has been our tendency to want to either overcomplicate things or get ahead of God or to ask the question, even I think in the flesh when it comes to the basics of salvation, well, there's got to be more to it. it. It It can't be as simple as just confessing with your heart, believing, and then accepting the work that Christ did on the cross. Clearly, there must be something here that you're not telling me when it comes to even the basis of salvation. It is so true. I mean, for for God to say, I'm willing to give you heaven at the cost of my son, I mean, uh, no human being would ever invent such an offer. Uh, I'll give you my best. Uh, one commentators said, when we were at our worst, God did his best. And that's the cross in the middle of the carnage and chaos of a sinful world. Uh, It's all about that. I don't want to lose the message in the midst of the methods. The methods, uh, Warren Wiersbe used to say, uh, methods are many, principles are few. Methods always change. Principles never do. And uh, we do not want to lose a message. We want to be contemporary, whatever that means, because in, in about six months we'll be outdated. You know, the, the pop charts will change more rapidly than we can change. But I think people sometimes, you'll hear people say, I lost my church. They don't sing what I used to sing. Sometimes they don't preach what I used to hear. And uh, how does the eternal have to be updated if you speak of things eternal, it's always relevant. Doesn't this really come back to the basics of man's fallen sin nature, the fact that we have offended a holy and righteous God, but that he so loved the world that while we were even in that sin condition, he sent his son to die on our behalf to pay our price because God so desperately wants to have relationship with his creation. It, it, it seems to me that a message 
as powerful of that as that does not need embellishment. It doesn't need some sort of methodology behind it to, to spread or to catch attention. It's, it's not the methodology. It is the uh, powerful work of the Spirit of God, because this gospel, as you shared, the love of God and the death of Christ, it is the power of God that brings salvation, that the chains fall off. Uh, it is that uh, quickening ray that uh, made our chains fall off, and we arose and we went to Christ and left the tombs of our sin. It, it is marvelous. It is wonderful. I, I think we do not want to insult God as though he gave us a powerless gospel and a, uh, an anemic Christ. I, looking at the book of Revelation, I was amazed at the picture of Christ that no pathetic Christ is pictured in the last scenes of the Bible there. A powerful Christ, plenty capable of crushing the nations who oppose his right to reign. He's a powerful Christ. And his God. And sometimes we act like uh, things are so bad. I used to have a pastor that would say to me, well, we have simply come in our culture to where the Bible's culture started. Rome and Greece was as bad as it has become in our country. And sin has never uh, stopped the gospel. It, it is made for sin. You know, where grace <laughs> meets sin, sin may be great, but grace is greater. Yeah, the amazing thing about that observation, uh, Dr. Howard, is the fact that some people, I think, do get a sense of discouragement. They see what's going on, in particular in our nation today, morally, spiritually, culturally, politically. They get very frustrated. There's certainly a long laundry list of reasons why. And yet, I think we somehow fail to connect the dots, as you just did, that even at the worst of what's happening in our culture in America today, uh, it, it pales in comparison to what was unraveling in cultures like ancient Greece or ancient Rome. And in the midst of all of that horrible sin, the power of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ was able to penetrate through all of that, even as they tried to silence him by hanging him on a tree and threatening the disciples to not dare tell the story. And yet here we are more than 2,000 years later, and the story, the greatest story ever told, continues. Do we sometimes tend to sell God short? Oh, absolutely. I Reading through the Gospels again, I, I was just reading uh, Matthew 17, and uh, the man bringing his boy to the, the disciples, please cast this demon out. And, uh, of course, they couldn't. And later they said, why couldn't we do it? He said, you didn't have enough faith. I cast him out. And he said, oh, ye of little faith. He had just some faith. You can remove a mountain, and I think today uh, the giants are big, they're looming, and we can see ourselves as grasshoppers, and uh, it's easy in the midst of all this carnage. Uh, where is God? Where Where are the promises? Of, we're crying for revival. I don't know if that we're crying for it. We're desperate for it, because it seems to be a season of uh, uh, the abounding of sin, and would to God we could have another great awakening. Let it start on the West Coast. 
<laughs> but you we know, need I a great awakening. I, I think about that, and, and I have to wonder though. Down through history, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, in those cases of tremendous movements of the Spirit of God. Didn't it begin with God's people being obedient? And, and I ask that question because oftentimes, for example, we'll, we'll cite Second uh, uh, Chronicles 7.14. Uh, my people who are called by my name, so on and so forth. Everybody's familiar with that passage of Scripture. And we quote that, and we believe that that there somehow means that God is going to, to move. God is going to be one to initiate it all. And though, isn't it interesting that he calls upon his church to be the ones to confess and repent and turn from our wicked ways? And well, so I have right. to wonder if, if as much as we who recognize what's happening in our nation today are waiting on God, is the real issue the matter of God waiting on us? That's a, that's a powerful analysis. And I, I just have to say you're absolutely right, because the history of revival was always preceded by prayer, uh, some desperate people fasting, praying, and uh, Sometimes you want to say, you mean it's come to this, that we ought to be fasting and praying? Uh, because I think sometimes we're looking for a better preacher, better sermons, better buildings, better music, better, better, and say, what about a better you uh, that intercedes and actually cares maybe even for your grandchildren, for your the next generation? Sometimes I think we can act like I've got my ticket on the boat. I'm not worried about whether my neighbor gets one, mm. you know, and it's, it's easy. Uh, I, I gave a line recently, uh, love enough to care, care enough to share. You know, if we love enough to care and that's our struggle, let's don't be, let's don't be acclimated to the temperature. Uh, well, we need the heat of a burning heart and, uh, we're really preaching to ourselves right now. You and I, you and I'll have to meet to have a private prayer meeting. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, and it's interesting because I, I think the observation is true that for some believers today, uh, their relationship with God is reduced down to well, fire insurance. Uh, I am secure in my faith that I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And it stops there. And any notion of going deeper with God, developing a richer relationship with Him, seeing God not just as some powerful being out there in the uh, ether that can barely be touched, uh, but instead seeing God as a personal, intimate, loving God who wants to walk in fellowship with us, I think for some believers that's a bit intimidating, and for others, they they don't really understand the fullness of His grace or the fact that God did not simply send His Son because He wanted to prevent mankind from going into an eternity without Him, but because He wanted to walk in fellowship with mankind, and the thing that was in the way was our sin and our sin nature. Absolutely. Well, I think it's even uh, uh, hearing a lecture recently, a man talking about generational church, and was talking about their church had a um, uh, traditional, more older service was the first service, and uh, not not booming in attendance. Second service was contemporary, busting the seams, and just doing great. Uh, the interesting thing about it is the first service generation were the ones who footed the bill for the whole church. The contemporary service was packed, 
but no one gave. And uh, you think of all these templates that we've invented for church, young, maybe contemporary music, whatever. What about giving? What about praying? What about sharing? Uh, instead of just being cool, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with being cool if you haven't given up the heat of the gospel, uh, just to be, I guess the template, if we invent our Christianity, we can make it anything that seems popular, but we've got one template. We've got a New Testament of what New Testament Christianity looks like. And at the end of the day, it's not about what we can develop and design. It's about what God already laid out from the beginning, uh, even before the heavens and earth were created. I mean, there in the beginning was God, was the Word. And so we have struggled, I think, sometimes to try and outdo God. And the reality is there's no such thing as outdoing God. Beyond that reaching to the very essence of salvation and redemption, there's a lot of ways in which God demonstrates uh, his power in the lives of mankind. And I know certainly down over the course of the last 45 years, you must have innumerable examples of how God came through for the body there at Valley Bible. I, I'm reminded of the fact that you began with a, a small gathering, I think 19 or 20 people, um, meeting in um, in Pinole, and then from there eventually grew. But in between the years, you bounced around to a number of different facilities. Some were real nice. I understand some even had families of skunks living beneath the floor. Absolutely. I'll say this. We didn't attract people because the ambiance was inviting. <laughs> you know, we'd have to spray the building before service so the skunks didn't dominate. You know, the sheep came in, but the skunks lived there. <laughs> and so um, we we did everything wrong, as it were. It was an old dance hall. I had 19 that first Sunday because I imported all my nieces, nephews, you know, anybody that was family, uh, we brought them in. Then we had nine guests. I always called them the Philistines. We didn't know them. And uh, from there, uh, just teaching the Bible, God brought a, a group of uh, young people from Pinot Valley uh, that had either been saved uh, or were on the edge, kind of like uh, the Jesus movement, kind of the end of that era. And one thing, when we started, I had grown up with a lot of, uh, with a Christianity that was true Christianity, but a lot of emphasis on rules and uh, different lifestyle issues, dress, whatever. Uh, but when I started the church, uh, I started as a laboratory. Could the grace of God clean someone up without a bunch of rules? Uh if the grace of God can teach you how to live godly and righteously, uh, I came to that theology, but I needed a laboratory to see if it worked. And really, uh, the Holy Bible uh, was that laboratory for me. I, I could care less about numbers. Like I said, we just wanted to survive. And uh, to watch the gospel change one life after another, uh, to watch the church begin to explode in growth, by the first Easter, we were about 150, which was just fantastic. Knowing the Bay Area just to exist was a miracle, having been here. I always grew up in small churches on the south side of Richmond. And uh, 
so just to see it take off and the word spreading, young people stepping up, wanting to serve, it, uh, I had never been around anything quite like it. Uh, it was like a revival reformation, and God just, guys started preaching, started planting churches. It just, you know, just kept going. I craved to teach the Bible because I've never seen anybody change that it didn't come from that book being taught hopefully in the power of the Spirit. And so the future is to keep doing what we've been doing and be willing to adapt. Jesus said you've got to be willing to be poured into new wineskins so that, I say this, our, our packaging may have to look different, but you want the content of the gospel not to be diminished. So we've got to be willing to change, but know what not to change. And as I keep the truth, keep the truth, keep Christ, keep the Word of God. But, hey, if we have to change the color of the building, if we have to change some things that can change, change. But, and sometimes people get set in their ways. They won't change anything. And so I, I think I want us to be willing to flex on everything that's flexible while clinging to the eternal Dr. Phil Howard, founding pastor at Valley Bible Church in Hercules. Sunday services are regularly at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. They're located at 1477 Willow Avenue in Hercules. The radio broadcast, Truth For Today, can be heard weekday mornings at 5.30 a.m. with a special Sunday broadcast, Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. Complete details on the church, its ministry, and location and directions, simply go to valleybible.org. That's valleybible.org. Thank you for listening to the KFAX Ministry of the Week. More information about this week's highlighted ministry is available at kfax.com. Also, please tune in this Sunday at 12 noon for a message from this ministry. And tune in at this time next week for another edition of the KFAX Ministry of the Week. Until next time, God bless. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.